Revelation chapter 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, With a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So I want to start by asking this question. Like, what comes to your mind when you think of the question, what is it that makes Jesus most worthy of praise? What is it about his, his nature, his characteristics, his attributes that make Jesus worthy of worship, worthy of praise? What is excellent about him, most excellent, most admirable, most beautiful, most praiseworthy? I think that you and I were made to worship. The human heart was made to worship, to just stand in awe of supreme excellence. That's why we're drawn to things like beauty and art and nature and and sports and innovation. It's because we're all sort of enamored by the things that seem to take us outside of ourselves. There's greater healing for the soul in getting caught up in majesty than there is in just getting caught up in myself. You guys relate to that? As John Piper says, What could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on the speck called Earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his or her own self-image? Last week, 
we looked at how God is worthy of praise and worship because he is our holy creator. He's the one who made us. He's the one from whom all things come. And therefore, he's worthy of worship because he's our holy creator. But what we're going to see is that God is not just our creator God. He's also a savior, a redeemer, a friend. And so what I want to ask now is, do you know God in this way? Do you know God in this way? Are you intimately aware of him in this way? Could you describe yourself as somebody who is intimately aware of both God's greatness and his grace? During the medieval times, there was this Franciscan teacher by the name of Bonaventure. He was Italian. And a student once asked him, why don't men and women love God more? He said, teacher, why don't, why don't men and women, why don't they seem to love God more? To which he replied, they don't love him because they don't know him. They don't love him because they don't know him. And, and that's the same assessment that I would have for this day and age. Now, how many of you have ever kind of pondered that question? Like, why don't men and women love God more? Or have you ever sort of assessed your own heart and asked, man, why don't I love God more? I would like to say that I did, but I, if I'm honest with myself, like, I, I don't, why is it that I don't love God more? And I think the same answer rings true. It's that if we don't love him, it's likely because we don't truly know him. And some of you might be, might be thinking, like, who do you think you are, right? Like, like, you don't know me. Of course I know God. Of course I know Christ. But, but it's one thing for, to, to, to know about somebody than it is to truly know somebody, right? Like, it's one thing to see that the sky is big and black, and it's another thing to savor its vastness to be so enamored with it, to be so intimately aware of how big it is that you start to see yourself as less significant than maybe you had before to where it begins to bear weight on your soul and, and change you from the inside out. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he's having this experience that shapes his heart. An experience that shapes not just what he knows about God, but in his heart, how he feels about him. And in Revelation 4, last week, we saw that he goes from, know, like last week, he went from knowing God to truly knowing, from seeing, from seeing to savoring. And that's going to continue now as we get into Revelation chapter 5. So would you pray with me, and then we'll go ahead and get into the text. God, we... Confess that a lot of times our, our view of who you are is um, small and trivial. Or maybe it's unbalanced. Maybe we make much of your holiness, but, but little of how of intimate friendship we can have with you. Or maybe we make much of how you're a friend of sinners, 
but we make too little of how great you are and how you call us to holiness. God, as we work our way through your word in Revelation 5, would you just help open our eyes to see how great and grand and beautiful you are. That we might walk away not thinking, oh, like I'm unworthy and there's no hope for me, or that we wouldn't walk away thinking like, oh, if I just try harder, then maybe God will accept me, but that we would just walk away being enamored by who you are to not just know things about you and know ideas and have a relationship with ideas about you, but to, to, to truly know you and to truly have a relationship with you. This can only happen by your spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you just transform us from the inside out? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Point number one. We're going to see that there's a sealed scroll and that the sealed scroll is a problem. Number one, the sealed scroll is a problem. Now, you're going to have to forgive me because the scripture references, I don't have slides for today. That's part of the technical issues that I had. But um, that is our first point, that the sealed scroll is a problem. And we're going to look at that beginning in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, which says, Then I saw... Again, this is John speaking, and he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. So two-sided scroll, but it was sealed with seven seals. Now, this is fascinating because, remember, John is in the throne room of heaven, right? Like he's seen this vision of the throne room of heaven, and on that throne, he's looking at the hand of the one that's seated on the throne, and he sees not a battle sword, not a royal scepter, which is kind of the thing that you'd normally expect to find in the hand of the king who rules the universe, the god of the universe, but instead, he holds something even more significant. The one who sits on the throne holds a scroll. Now, this isn't the first time in the scriptures that we see this imagery about a scroll, right? Like, and what we see from throughout the Bible is that the scroll is actually a symbol that pops up in all other forms of ap apocalyptic literature. It shows up in other uh, genres of scripture that would be called prophecy. And if you've been with us since the beginning of our uh, a, a sermon or a series in Revelation, you know that that Revelation is really about an unveiling. It's about a revealing, right? Like some of us, we, we grew up being taught that Revelation is, is all about like just the order of events of things that are going to happen at the end of the world when, when, when everything just kind of falls apart and Jesus comes back. But to rightly understand Revelation, we need to first understand it as an unveiling. That Revelation unveils for us, it reveals for us how God has always been at work throughout history. Not just what's to come, but about what's true right now. 
And what we know about the scrolls is that, is that the scroll is, is, uh, is, an, is an image, a picture, and that's another, an, another way that we, uh, another form of apocalyptic literature is that a lot of these things that we see, these images are, are symbols. Numbers aren't meant to be taken literally, but they are symbolic, right? And what we see in apocalyptic literature is that when you, you, you see uh, 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 like messaging about the scroll, it's that the scroll tangibly represents the sovereign plan of God over all space and time. And so the scroll represents God's plan for his judgments and for his justice, his plan for healing the nations, his plan to redeem his people, to restore the cosmos, to make all that has gone wrong in the world right again. And because it's written on both the inside and on the outside, that tells us that this scroll has now been complete. All the content is complete, which would be good news, right? But if this scroll represents the plan of God, and to say that the plan of God is, is complete in its content, that would be good news, right? To know that the wise and good and sovereign plan of God is complete, but then we see this problem that there at the end of verse 1. It says that this, this scroll is sealed with seven seals. Seven, when you see it in apocalyptic literature, that number seven throughout the book of Revelation represents completeness and perfection. Why does that matter? Is because it speaks to both the authority of the scroll and also the inaccessibility of the scroll's contents. And so to say that the scroll has seven seals is to say, good luck trying to get in there. This, soul, this seal is perfected. This seal is complete. So then it continues in verse 2. And John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. You see, that's a problem, right? That's a problem. It's like when you buy, you know, that, that nice, pretty blouse at the store that just fits you perfectly. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about too, right? Just kidding. <laughs> but then you get home, and then you find like the security tab is, is still bolted on there, right? And you're like, ah, oh, man, like this thing is no use to me until I can get this thing off, the security tab off. You see, this glorious scroll in the scriptures here has infinite more value than your favorite blouse or shirt. It's got infinite more value, and it contains the perfect plan to restore the universe to its original created purpose. And so it's a problem that this seal, uh, scroll is sealed and that no one can open it. And that's why in verse 4, John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, before we think that, you know, John might be overreacting a little bit, like, it's just a sheet of paper, right? We got to again consider the significance of this scroll. John weeps. 
because he, he desperately wants to hear the message of God. He weeps because he desperately wants to hear God's redeeming and rescuing plan to restore our broken world, but it's inaccessible to him because of these seals. You see, the thing about this scroll is that opening it doesn't just reveal God's sovereign plan, it actually launches the plan into being. So opening this scroll is to unleash God's plan to save sinners and re restore the whole world. And John's like, man, I, I want that. I mean, how many of us can say, I long to see that? I want that to be a reality right now. And that's how John's feeling. He's like, man, this, this scroll is sealed. No one, this angel is telling us that no one can open it. And so he weeps. And that scene is an echo of our shared human problem, our shared ache that we have deep in our souls, our ache for truth, for goodness, for justice, beauty, love, forgiveness. Have you ever been tempted to say, God, why? Why, God? Why do bad things happen to kind people? Why do people have to die? Why cancer? Why is this world so unfair? Why are governments so corrupt? Why are families so broken? Or have you ever wondered, like, God, how could I possibly stand before your presence? I keep messing up. I keep failing. Knowing the lies that I've told, the perverse thoughts that flash through my mind, the ways that I've exchanged following you for the comforts of the world, the way that I've denied your power by the way that I live, how could I ever stand before you? And see, John knows that this scroll, this scroll is the very mind of God. It's the very wisdom of God on how everything is going to be okay. And John longs to see it open. Wouldn't you? The tears of John point us to a deep heart wound that is not just found in him, but I think in all of us. When our longings and our hopes and our purpose in this world are put into question, and sometimes we don't know where to turn, and you just want to weep. You just break down. You see, right on the heels of Revelation 4, where we had this glorious vision of worship and joy and celebration around the creator of the universe, around the throne of God, John longs for that reality with a new sense of urgency. And then the scene moves from John's weeping looking for one worthy to open the seals to this new messenger who comes, a new angel who comes to comfort John 
by drawing his eyes to the one who is worthy to break the seal and open the scrolls. And this is our second point, that the suffering Savior is the solution. The suffering Savior is the solution. So the sealed scroll is a problem, but there is a suffering Savior who's the solution. We read about this first in verse 5 when it says, And one of the elders, which can also be translated messenger, said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, who is he talking about? Who's John talking about here? This, he's talking about this, this one who is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that refers to, in Genesis, when, when Jacob, who became later known as Israel, bestowed a final blessing in Genesis 49 on his son Judah. Jacob blessed Judah and he said, this kid's like a lion's cub. He's like a lion's cub, which is to say, this kid is tenacious. Who would dare cross him? And he foresaw a victorious dynasty that would come from Judah's lineage. The messenger also describes him, this, this, this one who could open the scroll, as the root of David. And that phrase, the root of David, that, that comes from Isaiah chapter 11. Where there was this exile that happened that made all the people think that King David's line would be snuffed out because of this exile. But this prophecy from Isaiah basically said, nope, that's not going to happen. The line of David is like a branch that will bear fruit. When he comes, he will bring justice on behalf of the poor and oppressed. The wolf will live with the lamb which is a way to say that people, enemies, will be reconciled and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah is saying, like, look, no, there's somebody who's going to be the root of David who is going to, to undo all that is wrong with this world. So Jesus is being described here as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, he is the strong lion from Judah's, and he's like the victorious king from David's line. And it says, he has conquered. This lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered. What has he conquered? Everything, man. Everything. Satan, evil, sickness, death, Corruption, perversions, every sin under the sun, through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus thrust a sword into our greatest enemy. I want you to imagine what hearing this news must have felt like for John. How he would have received these words from this holy messenger that was sent to him in the middle of his weeping. I want you to imagine the comfort and the joy that would spill over John in this moment. Just at a time when he thought that all hope was lost because the scroll was sealed. 
this, he receives this prophetic message of hope that just comes flooding in. And the messenger says, look, the line of Judah, the root of David, he's here. He's right there. He can open the scroll. He's, he's triumphed. He's conquered. And he is worthy to undo the seals and to open the scroll. And then John turns his gaze away from that messenger back to the throne at the center of this throne room. And what happens next? Don't miss this, all right? What happens next is the most important part of this vision. What happens next changes everything. Changes everything. Turns our understanding of how the world works totally upside down on its head. Notice in verse 5 how the announcement just kind of builds, right? The line of the tribe of Judah, the, 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 the root of David, he's conquered. He can open the seal. The announcement builds, and you've got this expectation of this powerful, glorious figure. And John turns to look at the throne expecting to see this roaring lion that no one would dare cross. But look what he sees and said in verse 6. It says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's like, what? How do we go from the lion has conquered, the lion can open the scroll, to I turned and I saw a lamb, like a slain lamb, a slaughtered lamb. You see, what John heard about is a lion, but what he sees is a lamb. What he hears is strength, but what he sees is weakness. What he hears is a victorious conqueror, but what he sees is a victim, a slaughtered lamb. And this verse, verse 6 in this passage, turns our understanding of the world upside down because we find that this major theme in the scriptures magnified here in the book of Revelation is that victory comes through sacrifice. Victory, triumphant victory, comes through self-giving sacrifice. And that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. He's a king unlike any other. He's a king of the cross. He's not a lion with this lamb disguise. Like, oh, I tricked you, right? It's me, the lion. I just look like a lamb. No, he's, he's not, he doesn't have this lamb uh, mask on. He's also not God who just kind of put on some people skin. No, he's the lion and the lamb. 
in the same way that he is both creator God and a man, the perfect man who gave his life on the cross for you and me. And he appeared like a lamb who was slain. His wounds are real wounds. He had a real body. He was literally slaughtered in our place for our sins. His wounds are real. And Revelation 5 reveals they're also a sign not of his weakness, but of his strength. You see, King Jesus is the king who passed through death in order to defeat death. But on the other side, he still bears the marks of death. He's the suffering savior. The Bible tells us that even in his glorious ascended state, even right now after Jesus ascended back to heaven where we wait for him to return, in his ascended, glorified state, it says that Jesus still bears his wounds. They're still visible. Why is that? Why is that? Why would the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the restorer of all that is broken in the cosmos, why would he, in his glorified state, still bear the marks of his wounds? It's because they're a sign of his self-giving love. One of his most beautiful attributes. It's a sign of what kind of God he is, what kind of king he is. Yes, Christ is a picture of unbridled power, but his power is realized in his self-giving love at the cross. His victory came through his surrender. He gave himself over to death so that we would never have to experience its finality. That's why, number three, we respond by celebrating. We celebrate this lamb-like lion in worship. Number three, we celebrate this lamb-like lion in worship. Read as verse six continues. John says that this, this lamb has got seven horns with seven eyes, which represent his supreme worthiness to be praised. That's what the seven horns are about. And his seven eyes uh, uh, represent his omniscience. Again, this is apocalyptic literature, all right? So, so that doesn't mean that when Jesus returns, he's going to be like this, this weird, deformed creature. But it tells us the horns and the eyes and the fact that he's a lamb tells us something. It reveals something about his true nature and character. So it says, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And that speaks to his presence among the churches, how Jesus watches over the churches. He looks after them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 7, it says, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four 
24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, what, what does this mean, that the, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb? In the book of Revelation, the number 24 represents all of God's people. All right? That's because you've got 12 tribes of Israel. You've got 12 disciples. 12 and 12 makes what? 24. All right? And so it says the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. This is representing all God's people. And it says each is holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now that's amazing there. This is amazing because this means that our prayers, think about this. It says golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This means that our prayers are the aroma of heaven. Think about that. Like our prayers fill the air before the Lamb of God and his throne. <coughs> Man, if that doesn't motivate you to pray for the church and for your brothers and sisters around the world more, like I don't know what does, right? Like our prayers are gathered and stored up in heaven where they're repeatedly offered to Jesus in acts of worship. <coughs> they're Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Excuse me. <clears throat> Verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. <clears throat> And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So you see all of these creatures, all of the 24 uh, elders, they break out in song. They're saying, worthy are, are, are you to take the scroll, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God <coughs> from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you make them a kingdom of priests, and they shall reign on earth. You see... They break forth in worship. Thank you. They break forth in worship and singing because that's what happens when you see the Lamb of God. That's what happens when you see the lion and the lamb. You can't help but break out in joy, break out in worship. It turns our, our it, like our gaze begins to shift uh, to, from, from ourselves to the uncreated one. From creation to the uncreated one. The Lamb of God is unveiled and grace is proclaimed here in these verses. It says they sang a new song. Another way we could translate that is a refreshing song. Last night... Um, some neighbors and I were, were, were uh, sitting on a couch going around picking, like, our, our favorite songs, right? Like, one of them said, like, what's your, what's your favorite song? If you had, like, a theme song that, like, you, you know, you, you was your song to play, like, for, for, like, what would it be? And we're all, like, naming, like, all these old tunes, these, these old catchy songs from, like, oldies to 70s, 80s, like, 90s, like, just all the, the really catchy songs, like, the kind of songs that are, like, head boppers and anthems, right, that just get stuck on your, in your head, songs that just kind of, kind of hit, right, 
songs that you get really into when you first hear it for the first time. Remember when you hear, you hear a song and it's new and you're like, I like this, right? This is new. It just kind of hits right. And, and it moves. It moves your heart. You start to bob your head, right? This is, is what is happening here when it says they sang a new song. This is old truths bringing fresh water to dry and weary bones. When you truly encounter the Lamb of God, it changes you. It puts a new song in you, a new song that hits just right that you can't help but proclaim it. You memorize its words and you can proclaim it at any moment. You can't help but break out in song because something about singing and worship just reminds us that Jesus is at the center of it all, not myself. Worship does that to the heart, doesn't it? Then it continues in verse 11, and it says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, around all of that, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, which is John's way of saying just, just every creature and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. says, worthy is the lamb who was, what, strong, yoked, the lamb who won the popular vote, the lamb with the billion-dollar mansion. No, it says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Second time this is mentioned. In verse 9, it's directed right at the throne when it says, when they, they sing, Worthy are you, speaking to Christ. Worthy are you, for you were slain. Isn't that wild? Isn't that so unexpected? Doesn't that just turn our world like on, on its head, our, 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 our whole understanding of how things are supposed to work? His worthiness comes from his slainness. Look, Jesus was, Jesus was popular. He was well-known. He gained a following by healing, by teaching. He gained authority everywhere he went and popularity by wowing everyone with his works and with his words. But when he was wounded, man, most of them took off. They left. They weren't ready to follow a lamb who was slain. But Jesus couldn't transform lives with works that impress. Transforming work happens in moments that are typically characterized by the world as weakness. Transforming Work 
happens in those moments we characterize as weakness, like when Jesus left to pray alone, when he sat with the sick and the unwanted sinners, and of course, especially when he suffered at the hands of men and died on a criminal's cross. Who wants to follow that guy? I do. I do. It's because I see now. I see now through the preaching of the word. I see now through the gospel and the power of the spirit to enlighten my eyes that this slain lamb, this slain lamb, he's the one who can break those seals. He's the only hope of the world. And I see that now. I see that now, and I I hope that you do too. And when you're transformed by that gospel, not only do you have a new perspective on the world, you also receive a new purpose for living. And that's why, number four, we see that we serve now as priests of the lion and the lamb. We serve as priests of the lion and the lamb. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in a, like the Roman Catholic tradition like I did or some other like high church tradition, your, your view of the word priest is, might be a little tainted, right? So let's redefine our understanding of that word priest according to the scriptures. To be a priest simply means to be a mediator. Right? Like, like if somebody is mediating between two parties, they're standing in the gap between those two parties to, to, to mediate, to uh, make sure that, that the right information gets, gets across and that each person is represented rightly. And so a mediator in this context is somebody who mediates a relationship between God and people until they develop their own relationship with God. Why don't you look, if you have a Bible, look at verse 9 again. Just back up a few verses. When they were singing that first song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So what does Jesus do here? What are are they singing about him? What is it that Jesus does? He ransoms people. He he saves them by, by paying their penalty. He ransoms people from around the world and throughout generations to be his, to be his own people. He saves sinners to himself, and then he sends them out into the world as his priests, as his representatives in the world. Man, if you're a follower of Jesus today, listening to this right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, like that is, that's us. We are priests. We serve as priests of the lion and the lamb. What that means is that we are called to embody the humility of Christ, the Lamb of God. 
That means that for us too, victory comes through a sort of weakness. Now what does that look like for us? Well, for one, it looks like repentance. The discipline of repentance. Turning from sin, returning to God, dying to self, giving yourself over to Christ, surrendering, right? Those are words of weakness. It means that sometimes you might have to serve in quiet ways that get unnoticed. It means you embrace limitations and cut out areas in your life that, 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 that you, that you enjoy or, or find meaning in so that you can make space, more space for dependence on prayer. I want you to consider this question. And I hope that this is a question that, that you'll kind of sit on and meditate on throughout this week. What is one area in your life where you feel the need and the impulse to show strength and competency and importance and how can you maybe embrace cross-shaped weakness in this area? I want you to think about that this week. One area in your life where maybe you feel the tendency to, to flex a little bit, to show strength, competency, importance, to put on a front. And how can you perhaps embrace cross-shaped humility and weakness in that area? It says in this song that we will reign on earth with Christ as his priests. Part of what that means is that we gain everything that Christ inherited. We assume his victories. We inherit what he inherits. We belong to Jesus and he belongs to us. In Christ, we reign. In Christ, we have victory. We share in his victory. You see, the way of weakness confronts us with the reality that following Jesus, the lamb who was slain, will cost you something. We say no to things in order to rest in his presence. We say no to smaller pressures so we can enjoy fullness of pleasure forevermore. And there's a danger when we live a life of self-indulgence instead of a life of self-denial. Self-indulgence is how the world forms us. But those who love the way of the world, they're not ready for the appearance of the lamb who was slain. But if you have received him in faith, or if right now you're receiving him in true faith, he will change you. 
He will change you. He will turn your world upside down. You'll go from hating the slain lamb to loving him, admiring him. You'll go from loving yourself to giving yourself over to him and saying, Lord, make me new. Make me new. Our passage ends in verse 14 when it says that the four living creatures said, Amen. They shouted, Amen, which is to say, yes, we agree with everything we have sung. We agree with every word that we broke forth in praise. Amen, we affirm it all. And it says the elders fell down and they worshiped. This is the invitation. Fall down and worship. Are you ready to see him? Are you ready to see the lamb who was slain? If you are, and he'll literally change everything. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.